Hello. Hi. How Good. How are you? Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Amazing. How are you? I'm good. And yourself? Good. I'm fine. Thanks. Um, so we do have Lily coming here in a little bit. Um, she should be here any minute now. Yeah, no problem. But yeah. So see. how is it going this semester? What what grade, what um, year are you in? I'm in fourth year. Um, ah, so you're coming up to finish it. Yeah, this May I'll be I'll be done and out, which is exciting. Um, but the semester's been good. It's it's different, but <laughs> yeah. How have you found? Uh, because I'm always on the other side, so I always try to to get from um, students how they find it as student having to work in an you know all online environment. Um, it's definitely, it was a learning curve at the beginning, um, but I feel like as soon as I got myself into a routine, then it just felt like going to classes, like now that I'm yeah. in the, I don't know, the middle of all of it. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Lily. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. No problem. I like your background. I need some of those lights. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I found talking with the students that um, some of them, it's really, it's the motivation side that seemed to be a bit hard, you know, because you're kind of moving from your bedroom in case of some, some it's actually in their bedroom, but it's actually separating themselves, make it kind of hard to motivate themselves to deal with um, their courses. But so I'm glad you've adjusted. Have you adjusted, Lily? I have. Um, I think that it definitely was an adjustment for sure. Um, but luckily, I've been okay. And I've managed to, you know, keep up my motivation and keep up my grades. But yeah, it, it's definitely not as fun as going to campus. I absolutely love campus. I think you fix a beautiful campus. And I yeah. really like the feeling of being there. I was there yesterday, just studying in one of the open places that is open right now. And um, it's just like, it felt so good to be on campus, but it also was kind of sad because like nobody else was there and just like missing that okay. energy. Um, so it, it, yeah, it's definitely an adjustment, but I feel like I'm very, very grateful that my mental health has not been super affected. Um, I know that a lot of people have, have been affected by it and like rightfully so, it's a really hard time, but I, I feel grateful that I haven't. So. Is the support system in terms of um, the health services available for students at UVic? There are, and some of them are really good, but some of them definitely need to be improved. For example, yeah. if you want to see a counselor on campus, usually you can only get in like every once every two weeks yeah. um, at most. And that's usually if your case is like dire. If it's not, then it's usually only about once a month. So yeah. like for me, I am lucky enough I had insurance to go seek counseling services off campus. And for right. students who have that, that's wonderful, but not all students do. So um, I think that they definitely could improve in certain aspects, like how many counselors are available. But there's there's other things that they're doing really well. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I think even before, um, you know, COVID, um, it's one of the areas I always felt that um, institutions, universities should get better at doing because they're kind of structured on the nine to five scenario. And it's like a lot of classes are evening classes. And you know, students uh, and faculty as well run into difficulties and, and need to touch base with somebody now, not two weeks from now. They're feeling anxious or out of sync now. So two weeks or, you know, four weeks from now just isn't meeting it. And it's one of those that I would like to see improve because I think it exists, at least at the institution that I work at. I think there are issues with it and it sounds like it's the same issue at UVic as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, it's, it needs to be more widely available. And of course, it's great that there are things like hotlines you can call and like things you can call, but those are usually through the government rather than through um, your institution. And I feel like with such a huge institution, there should be like more capability to have those resources for students more widely available. What's your sense of the hotline? Do you think students use it? Because you might get somebody who's in Ontario or somewhere else, right? They're not necessarily in um, BC. 
or even in your own um, city? Yeah, absolutely. I've never used it personally. I think that in really dire situations, it's something that is important to have because if it can save somebody's life or help them through a really hard time, then that's always going to be something that I promote and think is important. But I also think that there should be like more widely available, like I know right now with COVID, it's hard to do these things, but more widely available, like walk-in centers for, yeah. for mental health, the same way that there are walk-in centers for doctors and, um, right. and uh, more chances to go and like meet somebody and, and more resources available to match you with the perfect person. Like it can take a long time to find a therapist that works that's perfectly true. for you. So yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. No, yeah. And I sort of agree when you said like the hotline is sort of like dire situations. I feel like most people wouldn't like call it if it was just like they're feeling like anxious or overwhelmed, like something that they might not consider to the level of like a hotline. And so I feel like having like an institutional level one might like make it a bit more accessible in that way. I, I, I think I would agree with that. I think it's really hard if if a person is feeling vulnerable and all of those and, in, and is in a crisis, um, to talk to somebody that they have no connection with at all is really difficult, right? But yeah, one of those things, I guess, we still have to work on in, in, um, in the universities and colleges. Anyway, ladies, I'm all at your disposal for over time that you wanted to talk with me. Yeah, and before we get started, is there any sort of questions that you had about the process or anything before or after? Um, no, I mean, when I initially contact um, you guys, are, you know, and sent the email was at the time when we're looking at um, elections. And I guess part of it will go into me talking with you about some of the things that I'm trying to do, but it's um, initially was trying to figure out, and I've always had this for a long time and I haven't been able to kind of put it into any, a concrete pattern or, or a package is around trying to nurture young leaders. I mean, especially for women, because there are massive gaps in trying to get them into um, any kind of leadership role, be it on boards or, um, you know, participating in any of the election at municipal level. And so it's always about how do we um, reach out to young people and get them into the process. And unfortunately, I, I seem to think about it more when elections come up and I go, are you serious in this entire province where we have more women than men and we still can't find, <laughs> you know, um, young women or women at any age, but at least women. And then what about all of, you know, individuals like yourselves that are on on campus, and I remember going in and speaking. This there's a poster behind me of um, one of the clubs that were set up at, at um, Langara, and they'd asked me to come and talk to them. And what was really gr great about it was it was being driven by young women um, in terms of project management, but also reaching out in terms of leadership. Um, and it was really great to see. But then once they graduate, then it's kind there's a gap. And it's like, how do we maintain that kind of connectivity um, to ensure that they, they stick with it and, and really step up? So that's kind of where my headspace was on when I initially made contact with you guys, because I wanted to find out what you were doing and um, are there ways that we can um, encourage more young women to participate in the electoral process? Um, and the challenge for me is, and it was again when I ran, because I ran for MLA in Surrey South um, this past election. And so it's like, let's try and bring someone on board that isn't in their 50s, you know, that is actually on their way through the system. Because then what you have is this massive void. Um, and then they kind of quickly get people, but it's like, we need to nurture them through that rather than doing it just kind of last minute and throw them in the deep end. And, and so I kind of wanted to find out what, what editor um, was doing and how do we help encourage um, what you're doing, um, you know, and, you know, whether you guys have um, 
are kind of politically aligned or whether it's more just, you know, a mixed bag of just strengthening and in and getting young women into leadership positions. Yeah, the this last little bit, I think you are our fifth or sixth uh, speaker. We've kind of done oh, that's all. Yeah, we're kind of covering all leadership positions. And so I agree that there is sort of that gap between all this excitement that happens in, in university of getting involved and becoming a director of your club and all of those things, and then sort of the after. Um, yeah. And so I also don't really have any concrete ideas of how to do that, but I think it's definitely a very interesting conversation. It's out in the universe. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it, like, I think you're right when it says that, like, it's, it comes to down to a lot of, like, election things, because um, I, like, worked on promoting voting and get, getting, uh, I worked as part of a program called Get Out the get out the vote in uh, 2019 for the federal election oh yeah um, and it was part uh through electorates actually the, the first time I really got like engaged with the club because I'd been um abroad the year before um but I was also doing it through a role with the um, undergrads of political science course union mm -hmm. and I think that what was really exciting to me was telling all these people about the candidates and I think that that was the first time a lot of people heard these names of the people who were running mm -hmm. and um I think especially for university students like they might remember the 2015 election, but they probably didn't know like who was running in the area, who their MP is. They probably knew like who right. Justin Trudeau is, who Stephen Harper was, yeah. like but they didn't know like the names of their local candidates because they weren't voting. Most of them weren't voting right. age. I wasn't voting age in 2015. I was 17 and I was just a nerd. And so I like followed it, but mostly out of just like the fact that I've always been engaged with politics. And I know that I'm kind of an anomaly in that area. Yeah. So it's really exciting to kind of engage with like um, university students for the first time because they actually could vote this time and so they need to learn who the candidates were and maybe they knew the candidate back where they lived but now they've moved to Victoria so they need to learn who the candidates are here and it was really exciting and I think elections are a really great time to do that and especially promote a lot of women who run because mm -hmm. um, as we know there was actually more women who ran in this yeah. last um, in this last provincial election but still more men got elected and you know yeah. that's, that's so there is a lot of women getting engaged with politics it's just unfortunate that the system still often like runs women in, in ridings where they can't win or they ha don't have as high a chance of winning um, or they they run them against like strong incumbents who are male um, or in, in writings that are not strongholds by that specific party or something like that. And so, um, but I do think it's a great way, like elections are a great way to get names out and to like learn about, about people and women who are, are in politics. But I think what our club is really trying to do is trying to put a spotlight on those women when elections aren't going on and also exactly. spotlight on women who aren't in like prominent like who aren't MLAs or MPs or running for those roles so in this interview series I, I believe you're actually the first person we're interviewing who's run for um like a seat in the legislature correct me if I'm wrong Madeline everybody else has been like um people who work in journalism people who work in bureaucracy people who work in advocacy like other roles that are related to politics but aren't like mm -hmm. what you immediately think of when you think of a politician and I think that putting the spotlight on those women as well is really a great way to expose women to all the possibilities there are in politics like you don't have to be an MP in order right. to be in politics there's so many other ways you can be involved um, and really putting spotlights on that has been one of our goals yeah no I absolutely absolutely agree with that um, I mean and for a long time I'm mostly in um, management and um, and in professional type of positions and stuff but what I um, so I lived in um, the United Arab Emirates for 12 years, um, where I was um, advising the government there. And I realized there um, what we've taken for granted here. So um, here we just assume that if an individual wants to run, they'll just run um, or they will, you know, and oftentimes for us, it starts back in high school or university, right? Where we get involved and then it carries on unless we are from a family that really encouraged community activism. And so there was that aspect and I realized that they didn't even have it. They were just starting to talk about women, um, you know, being in government. It just wasn't, wasn't thought of, wasn't heard of because they weren't kind of expected to be out there and in any kind of position 
of authority, um, or even just to sit in their local council. It just, at least with indigenous population here, um, the councils um, can be men and women. It had changed over the years. Over there, there just wasn't any of those things. And then um, when I lived in London, I was, um, I was director of education with the Commonwealth. And so there were 54 Commonwealth countries. And so my job was to deal with ministers. And the interesting part, so in all these countries, the interesting part, there were hardly any women. Um, but there were a few countries that really stood out um, for me because the UN, um, they collect data on women and women in leadership positions and all of that. And so when they opened the, um, the department uh, dealing with women's and women's issues, they were tracking the number of women that are in, in positions. And believe it or not, um, a country like Uganda that have gone through crisis and have come out the other end actually have more women in governments and in management position than developed countries like Canada and the US, <laughs> right? And you, you kind of take a look at that and go, wait a minute, but I thought we were supposed to be ahead, you know, given our education system and all of that. And it's just, for them, it was they select individuals, their issues with their system, but they, they select individuals they think can do the job. And in Canada, we have this you know, you kind of have to put in your, your time. And then when you put that in, then you get move ahead and those kinds of things. Um, and, and I realized that we needed to do more in Canada. That when I came back home, it was, we need to really engage generally at the community level because we're also missing um, women of color. We're missing um, blacks. We're missing lots of indigenous um, the indigenous population and new immigrants. And so it was a way of going, how do we get young people engaged? And we have to, I absolutely agree with you. My thing is get them engaged before the, before the election so that they know what's going on and they have a voice and, and they can help direct the strategy that we're, the groups are putting out because usually there are no young, no youth voice, just like they're also missing some of the, um, for lack of a better word, ethnic positions in terms of people of color and, and Blacks and, and Indigenous populations. So that's kind of where my brain was coming from going, they're developing countries that are doing it much better than we are, and we need to get better at it. We have some of the highest educated young women in the world. And yet we seem to have these massive gaps in terms of management positions, in terms of being on boards and any of those things. And where we actually do find them are oftentimes in nonprofit organizations um, that are working on some of those social issues. But again, they're not getting the same salary as if you were in the bigger organizations or in management positions in those. I also worked as executive executive director in the downtown Eastside Women's Center for a while. So I'm very much aware of what some of, some of those social issues are, but it's now about how do we get some of those things starting within, you know, outside of elections really, and help support them. And sorry to put you on the spot, but no. like, what would you say would be some of those ways or like things that you think do help uh, increase sort of representation of women in these roles or? It, well, in terms of management positions, I think that we, the institutions generally and um, need to get better at supporting young women. Um, you know, it's, it's, if all else is equal, because at the end of the day, we're talking about EDI, right? We're talking about equality, diversity and inclusion. And it's about that, um, organizations need to have programs in which they can take on young leaders and, and, and mentor them through their system um, rather than, you know, at the end of the day going, no, we will select him because he's been there longer. So include some of those things. Um, we have set up a number of policy globally with um, some of the international organizations to really develop their, their mentoring program and to have internship and the focus being on recruiting young women so that they get experience in those positions. Um, so 
In terms of the local organizations, I think it's still, um, we need to get better. And when I say we, it has to be a collective of individuals, um, but tapping into those um, leaders of companies to get them on board in terms of support and ment mentoring positions within their, or and internship programs within their organizations. In terms of the political side of it, I think every, um, Every political organization needs to have a um, policy. Well, it's more than a policy, it's actually have a plan by which to bring young leaders in. Um, so when I run um, for this last election, I'm always trying to don't we have young people to come on board. And what I like about Surrey South is that the um, the Writing Association very much actively go out and recruit young people to come in and take up different positions and to work through that, that will guide them that hopefully someday they will find that they might want to run. Um, but it's about, you know, actively go out and find them as opposed to kind of wait for them to go, oh, I think I will do that, you know. Um, so I think it's, that's another way of working with the actual political system if they want to get into that um, system. There are a number of community groups that exist that it's just a matter of um, assisting them with fi resources, financial resources that will encourage that kind of mentoring and internship to get them on their way. And we should start it, I think, when they're you know, in positions like yourselves in the, in the universities and in the colleges. And how did you sort of get onto to your path? You've listed a whole array of different positions already. Oh, <laughs> um, I don't know, um, boredom, maybe. I don't want to be bored. No, you know, I went, um, I think if thinking back, I mean, I, I did the high school thing. I ran for student council and all of that. And it was a way of, um, wanted to have a voice at the table that if you're questioning policy that you need to kind of know, um, you know, actively, you didn't necessarily just have to elect the head of the basketball or the football team, you can actually um, elect, elect someone um, that actually had some interest in it. So I did that for a bit. And then, but when I went to university, originally, I didn't, um, I didn't sign up for politics, I actually signed up for psychology. I wanted to be a psychologist and I went, got to Western and they only had experimental psych, you know, where they put the, the gerbil on the treadmill kind of thing. And it's like, no, I wanted to go where I talk to people. <laughs> and so along the way, um, um, I realized that I was really interested in foreign affairs. And, um, and so I took the foreign service exam and I realized I really like politics. I think, uh, you know, I might check this out. And, and so I, I, once I changed my, um, my major, I went into, into politics. And I, um, so I signed up for political courses and thought, this is kind of interesting. And uh, so I did that way in more kind of some of the issues and um, with the intent of joining the foreign services. And then of course you re realize that they wanted three or four languages. And back then, it's a long time ago, but back then they didn't actually post a lot of women into any kind of position of authority, um, any senior position. They were mostly working in Canada in foreign affairs, which means desk job. And you're, you're the one doing all the research for the people who are going to deliver on the research. And I'm going, no, that's not what I want. I want to be the person at the front end. <laughs> so um, that's kind of where it started. And then um, uh, after that, I may, um, primarily worked in, um, I guess, advocacy type group, nonprofit organization, new services. Um, I was concerned about some of the social issues. So I, um, I end up with a teaching degree and I wanted to make sure that individuals who marginalize or who are having issues didn't drop out on that basis that we provide support for them. So I, I did that and worked with the Youth Services Bureau and the Elizabeth Price Society, which looked at um, re-entry for women in, um, and a lot of them at the time were First Nations. 
Um, and so I did that for a while. And in one of my teaching classes, I remember um, we had professors at the time that were delivering on these, uh, on research that they were doing. And I felt that what they were delivering was significantly skewed where um, if, a, if a young person or if a child failed, it was because of the women or because they were single family or because, um, you know, there were a variety of different things. And I wanted to challenge that. And I wanted to find out why so many young people were dropping out of school. So I decided to go and register for my master's of education. And there was a sign that said, um, I can't even remember what the statement was. If you want to find out more about whatever, you know, um, then um, come and join our group. And it was to do a master's in criminal site. And it's like, okay, that, that was it. So I did that and then went, okay, that was really, really silly because that's not exactly quite what I had in mind, but I have a real interest to learn. And, um, and so in, um, in taking criminal site, my focus in essence got shifted and I realized how skewed research can be. And when we see these numbers, I'm going, what do you mean it increased 500%? What does that mean? You know, those kinds of things. And so I focused on the criminal, on the site, the criminal site component and did my, um, and did my, my research in um, what is now PTSD. Um, but I, at the time it wasn't considered um, part of the DSM-3 assessment categories. Um, but it was specifically focused on victimization and the adjustment issues and the lack of services and, and those kinds of things and that we needed to change how the criminal justice system is set up to deal with victims and those kinds of things. A lot of those things have since come in, but back then it was like, what is this thing? Um, so I still claim that if I had only focused to publish my paper, I would have probably been a millionaire by now, but hey. <laughs> anyway, so that in a roundabout way, that's that's where all things ha um, kind of came back, and then focused on um, working in administration primarily um, because I felt that more women needed to be there. And to be quite honest, one of the drive was also there were a lack of um, people of color in many of those positions and we were getting more and more immigrants that we didn't have the tools to deal with and so it was that kind of directed a bit of um, what guide some of the interests that I have around social development issues. Um, I'm just gonna jump in if, if yeah, it's okay. Absolutely. Um, I was just wondering, because I, I, and I'm sure a lot of people are very interested in foreign services and like, I want to take the exam at one point. Um, I know that obviously it's a different time now and hopefully there's a more placements for women now than there were um, back then, but do you have, can you give any recommendations for taking the exam or like, is there anything that you would say like you should know about foreign services before you take it? Because like, obviously you took the exam, but then you didn't really end up working in foreign services. So um, well, in, have any recommendations around that? Yeah, in a way I did, because as my, my, my posting for um, in London with the Commonwealth um, was a diplomatic posting. So I actually got there just in a roundabout way, no straightforward, um, you know, direction. I think that we do need more and more women in those positions um, because in a lot of ways, they understand the social development type of issues. And I think we just come out of, come out of, at it in a different way. Um, but I think with the way things are now, just working for the Canadian government in Ottawa isn't the only way to go through foreign service. We have a real global community now. So um, one of the most um, eye-opening experience was actually participating at um, the UN Congress. So I was a Commonwealth rep that would go. And that's where you get to meet all of these different people. So you're doing the same task, but not at that same level or not in, in, in the in country. Um, because what happens is that the 
ambassadors and um, high commissioners are chosen more politically as opposed to um, the person with the most merit. It's a po their political appointment. But in working with some of the international organizations, they are actually based on merit. You still have to go through your government recommending you and all of that. Um, it doesn't mean that one shouldn't join the, um, you know, the foreign services, but the focus there is about really understanding globalization, understanding the trends that are out there, understanding what are the issues and, and where Canada sits. Um, I, I think we have, uh, for a long time, we focus on Canada and the US and the world is much bigger than that. And Canada has a lot, I think we, we were pulled back a bit during Harper's time um, where we were removed from a lot of the committee, the global committees that we were sitting on, that they were looking to Canada for direction and, and to see how we do things. Because in Canada, we tend to do it more for the good of the society as opposed to, be, as opposed to a political direction. So even if, yeah, it, they, it will make a difference whether you're liberal or conservative, but at the end of the day, what we put out, we're putting out a perspective for Canada in terms of um, the good for, 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 the, for the, um, the society. And we very much are open um, to uh, helping others globally and being at the table that we oftentimes become a balance between the extreme position of the US or Russia and, and the rest of the world. And so we were pulled back from that a bit, but I think that with, with Trudeau, we've gained, we're gaining some of that back. We do have a voice um, at many of the tables. We have a, a voice um, globally in many of the major issues. And, um, and I think we deliver on the quality and the substance of, of what the information is about and the, the working as a collective as opposed to this is my country's position and take it or leave it. So I think there are different ways in terms of individuals working um, within the foreign arm of, um, of Canada. And a lot of that is through many of the global organizations. And they give incredibly good experience, um, I think, for anyone who wants to get into that side in terms of working globally to um, enhance or to, um, to share the Canadian perspective. Did I answer your question, Lily? Yes, yeah, sorry, I thought Madeline might jump in with something, so I want to give that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful, wonderful advice. And um, I think that it's absolutely everything you said was true because I've, I've volunteered with quite a few NGOs and um, they would give opportunities for people to like attend the CSW in New York City, like with the, with the uh, organization. And um, I never got to do that. Um, but uh, some of my call, like colleagues, people I volunteered with did. And um, I did get to do a few like other cool experiences through volunteering with the NGOs um, that I volunteered with. And so I think that you're absolutely right that like there's multiple different ways to go through. And I think that's going back to our conversation earlier about like not just showing what women can do in politics during the elections. I think it's also important to show like what women can do in politics you know, how you can get to your goal. It doesn't have to be this like straight line for that you think it is. There's lots of other ways to like get there and ways to do what you what you want to do. Yeah, I, I think also as well, the, the part that I have to be quite honest, I haven't quite figured out yet is how to access some of the funds, be it through government or through um, companies to set up these internships to make sure that young people can actually go and experience um, that. So go and spend, you know, six months or a year in Paris at the UN or, or with um, you know, a number of these organization or with one of the African, um, the African Union or something, just to give them that exposure and experience to see how those things work. It was a real eye opener for me. And I, you know, I've had lots of experience, but actually go into those things shows a different side. Now, it is procedural death 
to be quite honest. You know, they go in with binders this big and everything has to go through all the procedures. But if you bypass that and realize around the networking and the um, connections and and the reality are the realization that our issues are the same, they're just in different boxes, if you like. Um, in many of those for Canada being a developed and, and a well-established economic system, we have procedures for dealing with them. And so in a lot of ways, we kind of take it for granted. And then you go there and realize many of these emerging economies or smaller countries, just they're just now realizing what it means to actually live in a democratic community. And what does that mean? Um, we automatically assume that in Canada, everyone understands what it means to live in a democratic community um, and a de democratic country, but they really don't. And that is really visible when you have elections. Most people haven't a clue why it's important for them to vote, why it, it's important for them to know who is representing them. Because, you know, um, oftentimes it's either uh, I'm just going to vote on the day and it doesn't really matter or I'm just not going to vote because I don't believe in politics. And it's like, but you're actually turning over your responsibility for yourself to somebody else. So unless you're actively engaged, then you can't have a say because somebody's acting on your behalf. And that's really what democracy is about. It's about understanding those kind of process and that everyone is actually, it's their right and that it means something. And I think sometimes we take it for granted, um, but globally it's where you run into difficulty when you realize a lot of countries, they don't even have that right. They're just now working on that right. And we've had it for so long and not realizing how valuable it is really. I think it's also easy to forget that like women only got the right to vote in Canada a hundred years ago. Um, and a hundred years is not a long time at all. Um, and so I think that, you know, promoting that element of the fact that like, it wasn't our, always there. It wasn't always there. It wasn't always there. And it might not always be here, hopefully, exactly. it will, but we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. And yeah, I think that the voting is one of the most important people we can important things we can do as as a as a community as a community as a as a country i know you've kind of touched on this throughout um but all of this sort of experience that you got uh not just in different roles but also in like in different countries how do you think that sort of affected what you're doing now and sort of the work you've been doing as of late um in terms of my teaching i think i bring um <laughs> different perspective. I realize the importance of culture um, and the, the importance of human rights. Um, the fact that we talk about human rights as kind of this general thing. And again, I think it's partly because we've taken it for granted. Of course we have human rights. Um, and then when you start to unpack all of that, you go, what exactly does that really mean? And oftentimes in many countries that mean vote. Right. It's about voting um, because it, then we vote for the people we want to act on our behalf. I think what I bring to to the classroom is more just different perspective and that um, culture holds an incredibly um, important part in many in many individuals. In Canada, we operate in a very diverse community, but I don't think we really pay attention to it. I grew up in Ottawa, you know, I'm from Ontario. And I remember going through school, elementary school and high school as the only black kid. And no one kind of knew where I came from. It was just, and so there was the assumption that I'm there because maybe my parent was in, um, was, in uh, was an eye commissioner or an ambassador or something. And, and so I think for many years, I actually let them play around with that and didn't correct them because it gave me status, right? Even though I had none. And the fact that my dad was from Nova Scotia, my mom is from Jamaica, and it was one of those things because people, people say to me, well, where are you from? And I say, Ottawa. And they go, no, no, where are you from? And it's like, okay, that's the only culture I know. 
but we've taken it for granted. You know, when I when we were younger, we did all the the Christmas things and we did Bonham and, you know, skating on the canal and the festivals and all of those. But it was just kind of what we were. Like they didn't have that ingrained, um, what it, that it defined me until I grew up and realized the moment someone tries to identify me as an American. And I had difficulty with this because I, when I was in the Middle East, I, um, I was there during when the war was going on. And so I realized right away, it was, no, I'm a Canadian, I'm not American, but they automatically assumed I was American. And so when you, when I dealt with those individuals and try to get their perspective of why certain things are important to them, you realize that the base of it is around the role that culture plays for them and why it's so important for many of them that, and, and in many cases that cultural link is linked to religion of some kind, but it's because it's, it's kind of the glue that is holding the community together. So even though the community has grown and is globally, it's still wherever they go, they will find individuals that are similar or have the same interests. Um, and so I spent quite a while thinking about, okay, so what's my culture in Canada and um, other than Putin? And I'm, then I'm going, that's not a culture, <laughs> you know? And it has nothing to do with, it is, based on economic situation, but in terms of the root of it is trying to figure out what we actually think is important for us in terms of culture. And, and so what I try to do is balance out in my classroom and I give the Canadian perspective, um, but I can bring other perspective to it and why that might create a conflict, why they would take different interpretation to certain things and why we need to be more open to different perspective because we're probably other than the US, I think we're probably one of the most diverse community in the world because everybody, we have a bit of everybody and we're all in one area as opposed to having, well, maybe that's a little bit different if you go to North Surrey now where it's primarily one particular culture. But um, globally, you have the dominant culture in the in, in the countries and then they try to eliminate all the minority cultures. And so there is like one culture. It's like in the States you are American and anything else goes. And what I like about Canada is the fact that we like that melting pot where everybody contributes all of the little things. And that makes us richer and more enlightened in a lot of ways because all of it is welcome. And I think that's what I try to bring with me. So uh, one, some of the courses I teach are things like strategic management, international business, but in terms of international management. And, and a large part of that, it's dealing with the business, but it's that your business cannot survive in a country you're trying to develop and, and put your business in if you do not recognize culture. Right. If you don't recognize the importance of the culture, you will have difficulty because you will not be able to engage easily um, with the um, the host country that you're going into and that we we can't um, dismiss it. It's about understanding it. It's about recognizing that it exists and having respect for it. Now, at the end of the day, for me, human rights trump all bit practices and all cultures. But we need to recognize that culture in many cases is something that they hold on to dearly. And, and, and it's about understanding how that can have an impact in the workplace. And from a management perspective, why we need to recognize it and why we need to um, understand the influence it has and what we can do to make sure that it's a more cohesive um, work workforce or work environment. On the the um, the political side, uh, <laughs> I actually ran for mayor because I was mad. Um, <laughs> I ran for mayor of Surrey because I felt that um, they were not. It's it was one of the fastest growing. It is one of the fastest growing um, cities. 
but it didn't recognize the diversity that exists. We had a platform that was eight men. It's like, what are you talking about? We have women. How can you, how can the parties actually just, you know, um, select men to run? And I thought that's not, that's in 2018, that's not where you want to be for a city that is so diverse. Um, the other thing was um, as well, the level of diversity, including um, looking at, do we have individuals from indigenous population and people of color and things like that. And I felt that they needed more, um, more diversity. So I, um, I decided that I was going to run. I also had an issue with the person who was considered to be the favorite was, also, was, um, was someone who I felt had totally um, misused his office and didn't use it in an appropriate way. And so Coleman was in the Liberal Party um, and was responsible for, was the Solicitor General that basically ignored the fact that, you know, they had all kinds of corruption and stuff going on in the casinos and all that kind of stuff. And I felt that, that that's not exactly what we needed to, to run um, Surrey. So I wanted to challenge some of those positions that they were putting forward and I stuck my neck out and, um, and decided I was going to hang in there, even though most people thought that it was the stupidest thing I could ever do. And it's primarily because I felt that they needed a woman at the table. They needed female voice at the table. Um, and that in, at, at the time was 2018, there was no way you should have an election that did not have you know, your largest population group that's actually represented. So that's why I ran in Surrey. I, it was more a real activist kind of getting in kind of muddy the water component. <laughs> so that's kind of why, why I ran there. And for the MLA, um, the NDP asked me, um, but I was also feeling that while they do cover um, and have a good distribution, I think 50-50, um, in terms of the individuals running, that they actually needed more diverse voices um, in terms of people of color and, and blacks. Um, it's been 34 years since Rosemary Brown and I thought it was about time that they actually start to really look at the makeup of BC. So that's kind of what directed me in that um, to run on, um, for those two offices. And then so obviously all of that took a fair amount of confidence and then resilience as he sort of went oh, along. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How did you, coming from the perspective of someone who's, who's quite a bit younger and all of that seems very intimidating, um, how did you develop sort of that confidence to put yourself in a position like that? Oh, it, I'm, I'll be really honest and said that you have to talk to yourself a lot and it's like, this is what I want to do. And if it's something that is important and something you want to do, you just close out the noise and all that garble of people telling you that you can't do it. It's, it's, you, you're going to get nervous. You're going to get, have all of those things. It's about being prepared. It's about knowing what it's all about, um, getting the information before you go. And sometimes, even though I'm probably the last person to actually say this, sometimes you have to jump, jump in the deep end to see whether or not you can swim. I can't swim. I did the jumping in the deep end. I survived, but I rely on others around me who can swim to make sure that they can rescue me if I'm really drowning. But it's also around connecting with individuals who, who's your support system. And if people, those individuals that really, you know, think you can't do it and don't want, you know, and all of those negative voices just block them out. And it's like, um, okay, find someone who's going to actually support you and be that anchor. Um, it's about just letting yourself know what the worst that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is I don't get the job or I don't, um, or I don't get that position. And then I learn from the experience. Okay, these are the things that I can do next time that would you know, give me a bit more confidence or that would allow for me to address that particular issue better. 
um, or really I need to stay away from that person because that person is just a negative person um, when it comes to, you know, my own confidence. So it's not easy and it's something you develop over time. I get, I get incredibly anxious. Um, I even get anxious when I go in front of my students, like, okay, who is going to say something way out in left field today and how am I going to deal with it? Comes with the territory, just, I think, believe in what you want, know that you can do anything you put your mind to. And if it's something you really want, don't let anybody tell you. Yeah, it's going to be hard sometimes. Um, no doubt, there are going to be people who don't want you to do it and might be negative, but you know, you will, you will be fine. And you find those skills that will encourage your, um, you know, uh, encourage your confidence. And it sounds weird to say encourage your confidence. When you start out, it's about encouraging. You can ask yourself, why am I doing this again? And it's like, oh yeah. And then you focus on that and it will, it will guide you. And, and then when it's finished, you go, okay, these are the things that I learned. I use all of those things as a learning moment for me um, and what I can do better or things that it, it wouldn't have mattered. Um, I think sometimes when you're with like an organized, um, an organized group, such as like a political party, there is you and what you believe, and then there is their perspective. And that becomes more difficult. And, and so what I, um, my campaign manager this time around, he was also um, with me during the, um, the mayor's election. I, I go to him and I say, okay, this is what they're putting out. This is a policy, but this is not what it's about. Um, my perspective is very different. So there is the policy in terms of the, the political party and there is your take on what that issue is. At the end of the day, you still have to decide that you have to be you. And I would, I would not recommend to anybody that they actually follow something because they, if it's against how they believe. Um, and then it's about having that private conversation that said, no, that's not what it's about at all. Or I can't answer it like that because that's a total, it's totally against my values. And if it's against my values, then I can't address it. So it's about, okay, if I'm asked this question, what's the best way to address it? So one way of doing it is to put out my personal perspective and what the institutional policy is about and find a way of, can I work with it or not? And if you can't work with it, then you can't address it because it will come up. Um, you can see individuals who are trying to answer a question that you know that they're not being truthful about. And, and you can tell that that policy doesn't sit well with them, but they're going by you know, the, um, the, the political stance. And, and that I think over a while we get to people's confidence because you're not confident about your answer. And so it's about finding the place where you can be confident about how you're going to address the particular question or that you can't answer the question or that it is the the um the policy or the strategy of the party um and then you have to decide whether you want to stay with the party or not <laughs> and sorry you kind of mentioned and it's sort of been an underlying theme but of sort of your values and not again to put you on the spot, but what would you say your values are? Oh, geez. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a fair question. Um, the, the, the problem I have with answering a, a question that is so big, it seems small, but it's really quite big, is um, there's so many aspects to it. I think the base of um, my values are principles that are ingrained in human rights, fairness, um, the equality, the acceptance of individuals, um, regardless of background or, you know, education or anything like that. It's about, at the end of the day, really, it's about treating people with respect and dignity. And, and those are core for me, human rights. Um, so 
to the, the center of what human rights is about is what my values are about. Um, in terms of the operational side of it is more uh, about equity and fairness and equality and inclusion. Um, and those are the kinds of things that I guess I live with. I teach ethics, by the way, so that comes into <laughs> trying to separate. Okay, this is my own values, and this is the values out there. <laughs> no, I, no, um, you know, on a serious note, I think um, sometimes we really kind of um, embrace certain things um, because they're there, and we we grew up with them, and they're things that are. Um, key component for a family unit. And then as we get older, we realize, naturally, I don't think like my parents do. I don't think those are my values or, you know, their values are structured in a certain way that I, I would question today because society has changed. So the core of my values haven't really changed. I've explored some of them and realized that at the end of the day, this is what it means. And, and it's all those things that I've just said to you. Um, and I think if I had to, if I had to choose to compromise them, it would make the difference with whether I take that job or engage in that activity or not. I think that was a great answer to a very large question. <laughs> no, it, it's big. <laughs> I think Lily's typing away. That's <laughs> No, it's <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so before, uh, just like kind of looking at some more of the present day things, um, yeah. what uh, what do you think that uh, the role of women is in in leadership during a pandemic? What do you think uh, is important for for us as future leaders and for for us as current leaders and just women in general? what is our role in times like these that are so unique and so? Wow, what is our role? I think our role is everything. <laughs> um, what is our role during, I think, that's a tough question. Um, I, I see, uh, I guess when, when you asked me the question, the first thing popped in my head was Dr. Bonnie. It's like, I believe in her. I believe what she's saying. I think she demonstrates confidence and she, she does it with a smile and with a calmness that will um, make people want to follow what she's saying. So that's what popped in my head when you asked me. I think in general for women's leaders, it's about providing guidance. I think they see the issues differently. Um, it impacts on them in a different way. Um, we, in terms of, you have a lot of them in um, the emergency type um, frontline workers situation, but also they're probably the ones that are also keeping the calmness within the family and within, um, you know, the positions that they're in. Um, I'm not by any means would say uh, that they're always the best leaders. I think they different, have different perspective. And the reason I said that is because I've had um, a number of female bosses and I'm like, yes, woman power. We have you know, two, three levels of, of females and we're gonna work together and conquer the world. And um, along the way, I think for a couple of those leaders that I've had, they decided being women weren't going to be successful, they need to act more like men. And, and it's, um, how do I unravel that or unpack that? Um, I think they felt that unless they could demonstrate at the table that they're just as tough and just as ruthless as the men, that that wouldn't mean or equate to being an, an effective leader. And um, in the situations that we were in, it needed the reverse. Um, I think sometimes, I think you can have incredibly strong women and we've had them globally, um, women who go out and know what they have to do and they still provide strategic leadership. But um, we need to make sure that we hold on to that and that we don't lose that. 
it's not a trade-off, I think, um, in terms of them being women. I think women can, um, can be anything they want and they can be effective in those positions. It's about um, communication. It's about um, relaying information. It's about making people feel that they can accomplish things and achieve things. And if we work together, the outcome is going to be much better than if we try to do it individually. That's kind of how I see women in, in leadership roles. I think we're far more cooperative and, and, and can still be a strong dominant um, strategic leader, but sometimes we kind of forget that other side and we try to be more where the dominants create the, the, the primary focus. And that's not what they usually trade, at least what I saw demonstrate, what they trade off are what makes them really strong and effective women. Yeah, I would agree. I think that leadership, strong leaders encompass both like masculine and feminine qualities of leadership. Absolutely. And I think that the importance of women leadership is having that voice. And I think that we live in a society that has been so male dominated that it teaches us that like, it's starting to get to the point where it teaches women that like, you can go out and you can do it, but you can only do it if you do it the way that a man would do it, which yeah. I think is completely not true. And what we need to be doing is teaching um, men and women and uh, non-binary gender fluid people that um, whatever they're doing, whatever that they can, they want to accomplish, they can do in their own manner. And there's a million different ways to accomplishing things. There's a million different ways to being a great leader. There's a million different ways to, to achieving success. Um, and, uh, and it doesn't have to just be done through like the, the norm of society. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, um, what's her name, Legor, who is the head of the IMF, um, you know, she went in, she, um, uh, you know, a lot of people questioned why she was appointed. You know, I think, what was she? She was a, um, a swimmer. Um, oh, forgot. What is it called? The interpretive dance in the pool? <laughs> Synchronized swimmer. Synchronized swimming, yeah. Yeah. Um, but she went in with there and um, people were kind of holding their breath as to whether she would actually be successful. And she was very successful. Right. She went in with her own style and she made things happen and was very successful. You have Margaret Thatcher, on the other hand, that was probably the only woman at the table. Right. With all the other political leaders around the world. And she accomplished so much. But for the men, they had to they couldn't just deal with her as Margaret. They called her the Iron Lady. Right. There's all of a sudden that she's acting and. They, she was doing exactly what they would have done in that position to get things done. But for her, it was a negative. For them, it's a positive, right? And so it, I think we're always going to have that because frankly, I'm not sure a lot of the institutions are quite ready to have successful women. Um, and, and so it's about the individual going and having the confidence to know that regardless, as you say, um, their pronouns or whatever that they can accomplish something and it's, and they can do it within their own style and with their own attributes. And so with that, I think we'll have to actually wrap it up yeah, no because we just reached our hour. And so I really do appreciate all of that. And I'm sorry to, to cut off any other oh, questions not at all. Or, or statements. Um, before we finish, I will just do a quick territorial acknowledgement. Uh, we usually start with it, yeah. but our conversation just started going. Oh. So yeah. <laughs> we'll end with it. Um, so before we end our interview, uh, we would like to acknowledge that for Lily and I, um, we are in Victoria right now. So We'd like to acknowledge with respect that we live upon the Songhee, the Squamalt, and Wissanich people's territory, um, and that their vital relationships with the land continue to this day. And so um, just wanna sort of close off with that because I think it's definitely very important that we recognize that. Um, Absolutely. And so thank you so, so much for, for talking with us. That was super great. And I'm, I'm glad that Lily uh, sort of made the connection so that all three of us could be here today. And I, yeah, I really, yes. really appreciate it. 
Well, thank you so much, ladies, for taking the time. I think that we are going to have a great future if you guys, um, you know, are going to be leading the charge. So thank you for taking the time. And it's, it's, it was great fun um, having this conversation with you guys. Yeah, it was wonderful. And um, I guess I'll just say a few things uh, and this will be cut out from the end of the video, but um, we will edit it and um, when we upload it, which will probably not be for a couple months because we have a few more, but we will um, we'll make sure to send you a version for yourself so that you have it. Um, and we can share the YouTube link with you as well. Um, and we'll definitely be in contact for any other things. We really are doing some panels, hopefully next semester with various women leadership. And we'd maybe, we'd, we'd, uh, we wouldn't, maybe we'd love to have you on one of the panels. So we will reach out regarding um, any of those kind of events coming up too. No problem. Well, thank you. And I, I know where to um, reach you ladies yeah. in case, you know, um, something comes up and I want you to come over and talk to one of my, one, once all this, the COVID <laughs> thing's over. You know, yeah. come and have a chat with um, some of the young leaders that we might have that, you know, you ladies are on your way and I wish you all the very best and thank good luck so with your studies. Yeah, thank you. And if anyone has any questions, are we, is it okay if we sort of forward those along to you? Absolutely. Okay, That's amazing. Fine. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Have a good weekend, everyone. Have a good weekend. Bye. And I'll Bye. talk to you later, Madeline. Yeah, see you later. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Bye.